chapter 3 there. If you were here last week, you remember that uh, the, be- the beginning of chapter 3, the very beginning of chapter 3, is an instruction to teachers, followed by a, a seeming complete different direction from verses number 2 down to verse 12. And he, what he said in verses 2 to 12 will make sense uh, for teachers and for everybody. Last week we kind of applied it to the universal uh, aspect, those of us who have tongues. But then there, there is a direct instruction to teachers. Now if you're not a teacher this morning, uh, this still will apply. So I hope that you will not turn me out uh, because you, are, you, are, you kind of already disqualified yourself. And I hope that you will kind of see the application for you in whatever um, phase of life or whatever area you happen to find yourself this morning. The big idea here, we're talking about real faith. We're talking about bona fide, genuine, authentic faith. Real faith displays God's wisdom. What we find here is a, uh, a list of two different types of wisdom with uh how they're displayed, and then what kind of results that they produce. As I said, James is still talking about teachers. If we were to read the whole passage here, um, we will just back up just a little bit into verse 1 and get at the idea of what he's saying here. Many of these verses in the first portion of this chapter are familiar to us, but um, the last part here uh, hasn't really changed course, but yet it picked back up what he seemed to begin and left off. Verse number one, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation for many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Then he went in for the next several verses and gave illustration on that truth right there. So when he begins his chapter with be not many masters or don't be so quick to teach, he's saying not everybody should be a teacher. And then he gives his reasons why. And the big reason uh, the deterrence or the discouragement from them being teachers is not that we have too many teachers. It's not that we don't have enough students. It's not that we, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an exclusive club and, and, you know, if I let everybody in, then it won't be as special anymore. James is qualifying himself as a teacher in the, in the second part of first, the first verse when he says, we shall receive the greater condemnation. So he's saying that I'm a teacher, but let me give you some advice, church. Don't Try to be a teacher too soon. Or don't, don't, don't uh, assume that privilege or that responsibility uh, before it is time. Now, he didn't say that none should be teachers. He says that not many should be teachers. And he explains his first reason because in verse, verses 1-12, through 12, basically he says that because the tongue, if not properly controlled, can do a lot of damage. And it is true that all should not teach, but it is necessary that some teach. We read the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 that uh, that Paul explains to both of those uh, writings there. He explains that God set some up to be teachers. And so if God is doing uh, this business of making some to be teachers, James is not trying to come in and say, you shouldn't be teachers and, and, and kind of trying to counter what God is doing in people's hearts and lives. Uh, that means that within this body of believers, God has given some the gift of teaching. And in both of those passages there, we find different gifts that God gives to everybody, not a conclusive list by any means, but definitely a list that tells us that it, within the body, there are some who teach. Now, last week, I explained a little bit that the idea of teaching back then 
would have had a different, uh, would have carried a different connotation than it means now. Now, if I ask someone to teach and I just walk up to the random person and I say, hey, would you like to be a teacher? Probably the response I would get was negative, right, Tim? Uh, Sunday school superintendent. One of the hardest things to do is find a sub for Sunday school teachers. Why? Because not everybody wants to teach. You'd be like, I got that down. I'm not teaching. I'm not getting up in front of people and, 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 and showing how foolish I am or getting up and, and reading verses and, 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 and stumbling over words that I could normally say and I get in front of a crowd or, or trying to, to teach some people and you sit out there and you look and you think, well, so-and-so has been Christian longer than I have and so-and-so, they know more than I do. Why, should I, why am I up here? That's how we, most of us, would take the, 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 the job or the title of teaching. But in this culture, being a teacher was a revered position. It was an esteemed position. It would be, it would be, would you like to be the one honored? Would you like to be the one esteemed? Would you like to be the, the one that everyone looks to and goes, wow, I wish I could be like that person. And so James has to put the bridle on. It seems in our culture, we're trying to push people, hey, you need to, you need to move forward. It's, maybe it's time to teach. And James is actually doing the opposite there because of the culture that, that, that these people were in. But he, he, and he explained his first little passage there that uh, because there, uh, there is a danger, either by opening up your mouth, simply the more you talk, the more in trouble you're going to get. I think I finished off a sermon last week by, by uh, saying something really dumb, and uh, most of you caught it. Uh, and, and the more you open your mouth, uh, the more you're going to get yourself in trouble. That's just how it works, right? But the, all, the other side of that, when we're coming to educationally or spiritually, it is that uh, if you are not perfect, the person who can control his tongue is the person who is a perfect person. He's not a sinless person, but he's a complete person. And so those who know what they're talking about should be the ones who are teachers. But now James is going to talk about this, this, uh, this second qualification for teaching. Not saying, again, that no one should teach, but if you're going to be a teacher, here's the list of qualifications. And he starts it off in verse 13 with this question. Who is a wise man and a dude with knowledge among you? And this is the, the, these are the two qualifications that James gives. He says, number one, knowledge, and number two, wisdom, or we could say understanding and wisdom. Again, he touched on knowledge in the first 12 verses by explaining that teachers should be com- perfect or complete or mature in controlling their tongues, whether in how they teach so that they don't teach the wrong things or in just simply saying offensive things. Have you ever offended somebody and totally didn't mean to? Like when you use the word actually, you know how you know how the word actually is used. Hey, honey, this is actually a good dinner. You were trying to compliment her, but what you said was it's usually not a good dinner. But tonight it is. Tonight you broke the mold, and it's actually pretty good. Or hey, you that was actually a good sermon, Pastor. What do you mean by that? You know, so that you can offend people so by simply. Saying one too many words, and or saying words at all, uh, when you when you when you walk up to some to some lady guys, and uh, you're pretty sure uh, that uh, there, there's a baby in the womb, but uh, then you find out no. You put yourself in trouble there. You know, like when do you do? Six months ago. Sorry, ma'am, or right, sir, <laughs> whatever. I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, We've all been there. We've all done that, and, and it's embarrassing. So simply by opening up your mouth, you're going, to say, you're going to say the wrong thing. But now James is going to take it a little further, and he's going to talk about this wisdom. So he kind of dealt with the knowledge portion a little bit in the first 12 verses, and now he's going to continue with this wisdom. And what he does is 
because knowledge is kind of an obvious thing for a teacher, right? You should know something if you're going to say something, if you're going to teach. But what James is saying here is that knowledge or understanding is not simply enough. If we put it into the church and into the church culture, which is what James is really focusing on here, is that uh, just simply knowing the truths of the Bible does not qualify you to be a teacher. Just simply knowing the verses and being able to explain the outline and be explain the, the main central ideas in each in each book and and the, <coughs> excuse me the target audience and the in the application all, all of those things knowing all those things and having a proper understanding of the scriptures does not make you qualified to teach to, to teach the congregation. Now James takes a much less common and maybe countercultural. Uh, attribute, and he ties it in and says, if you're going to be a teacher, here's something else you need. You need wisdom. And he unites knowledge with wisdom. And really what he's saying is we don't just need a smart guy. We need a wise guy. Not not the wise guy like you're thinking, like well, we would say you're a wise guy. But actually, we need a guy or girl who is wise. We need someone not who just knows a bunch of stuff, but someone who is wise. So let's let's look through these, through these verses. We're, we're in verse 13, and he asks this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who's wise and endued with knowledge among you? What he's going to say here is that wisdom will reveal itself by behavior. All right? He says here, uh, who among you thinks he's ready to be a teacher? And he just finished discouraging them. Not everybody should be a teacher. Now he says, who among you thinks he's ready to be a teacher? Or who should the teachers be? Now, maybe he's talking specifically to the people in the congregation that think, oh, that's me, I should be a teacher. Or maybe he's talking to the entire church saying, who should the teachers be? If not everybody in this church should be a teacher, then who should the teachers be? How do we choose from among ourselves or from without us to find those who should be our teachers? He he answers his own question. He says, uh, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. He says, let this person who is a potential teacher, let him uh, prove that he has wisdom and knowledge by his behavior. Let his conduct be displayed through humble wisdom. He says, don't tell me you're qualified. Show me you're qualified by displaying humble actions. Humble wisdom through your actions. See, understanding is simply knowing the right thing to do. It's the book smarts, right? Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but there are there are some of us who didn't go to college, and you're in a position that uh, you gained because of experience. You just figured it out along the way. Then there are other people who went to others of us. You probably went to college and you gained all of the book smarts, and you're in your position because you got that degree. You have some letters behind your name. You have some some book experience. And then others have what we might call real-world experience. And what James is saying here is, I want you to show that you have knowledge and wisdom through your actions. So just having an understanding means you read the book. You understand what it means. But then James goes further and he says this. Excuse me. <clears throat> Just as real faith must be proven by your works, wisdom must be shown through your behavior. So knowledge or understanding knows what to do, but wisdom actually does that. 
Knowledge knows what to say. Wisdom says it. Knowledge knows I shouldn't say this, but it doesn't necessarily not say it. You might say it anyways. I knew better. Right? We tell our kids that. You know better than that. They have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. Uh, we've all read the books. Have you ever read the instruction manual to something and you still have no idea what, you, what it's talking about? And they go, oh, okay. Then you, you just you have to go and do it and figure it out. You can read a book on how to ride a bicycle. But you gotta, the only way you learn to ride a bicycle is by riding the bicycle, by trying and trying and trying and falling and scraping your knee and, and crashing into the fence and the tree, and then you finally figure it out. Not because you read a book, but because you did it. You applied what you may have read in the book, and you begin to, and you begin to, uh, to, to, to display, I know how to ride a bike. Not because I read a book, but because I've ridden a bike. I know how to ride a bike. And let me show you. I'm going to prove that I can ride a bike by showing you riding a bike. And so James explains these things. He says, what good is faith if it doesn't do anything? Remember, we just talked about that in chapter 2. What good is faith if it doesn't have any works? But now he's saying, what good is knowing the truth if the truth doesn't change you? If the truth doesn't change your behavior, if it doesn't change your actions, all right, you know all the Bible verses, and you know all the truths of the Word of God, but if they've never changed you, what good is knowing that? You know, I went, when I was uh, several years ago, I went to the state fair, and um, they had this little booth where you could, uh, it, was a, it was a hand-washing booth. They wanted to promote clean hands. And so it was a room, you maybe have been to something like this, but they, they had us uh, uh, walk through this, uh, this room that was very dark, and it was uh, covered in black light uh, inside. So when you walked in, you could look at your hands, and the idea was to see how filthy, dirty your hands were. And then you walked out of the room, and you washed your hands at this little hand-washing station, and then you went back through the room. And most of us, you know, we do we wash our hands, and then you think, okay, I've got it, I'm good, I'm clean. And you walk back in, and you look back, and you realize all the spots that are still filthy dirty on your hands, and the idea was you need to wash it a little longer, you need to pay more attention to the hand, the parts of your hands that, you know, you're not very good at this. Well, what good is going through something like that and realizing, yeah, my hands are filthy dirty, and then not washing your hands? Not doing anything about the knowledge that you have. What, what does the knowledge do for you then? What good is all of that? What good is four years of, of uh, you know, legal, uh, uh, legal school if you're not going to end up being the legal profession? What good, is, what good is eight, ten years of medical training if you're not going to be a doctor or a nurse or something like that? It doesn't make sense to have all that knowledge if you're not going to apply it in some way, uh, in shape, or fashion. And James says here, concerning the Scriptures, what good is it to know something if you don't actually do anything about it, if it doesn't change you? Now he goes on. And he says that, uh, that a wise man must not only live out what he, what he knows, but he must do so humbly. Here's where it gets countercultural. If I know a bunch of stuff, human nature is I want to show off that I know a bunch of stuff. I want to show you that I'm smarter than you. And I'm going to use big fancy words, and I'm going to wax eloquent, and I'm going to just barrage you with, uh, with knowledge so that you walk away going, whoa. He's so smart. That's what human nature wants to do. But James says, all right, if you're, if you're, not, you're knowledgeable, you understand the Scriptures, and, you've, and they've changed you, live that wisdom out in a humble, or in the, the word here, meek, fashion. This is counterculture, especially in a culture back that we read in chapter 2 that showed off their privilege. He talked about a man in chapter 2 that walked into the assembly 
with flashy clothes and big bling on his fingers. And this is the kind of guy that wanted to show people, I have means, I have wealth, I have all of these things that make me better than you. And James is saying, listen, if you are truly no more and have applied more than other people, show it off, but not proudly. Show it in a humble way. Uh, humility was not a desirable or celebrated quality back then, and it isn't really that much of it today. A lot of times we think of hum- humility as a weakness rather than as a strength. A meekness or humility is not having a low self-worth, but it is having an accurate self-perspective, which then affects the way that you interact with others. Humility is not saying, oh, you're better than me. We, th- we know that humility means I'm not better than you. But humility, sometimes we, we, mis, we misunderstand it and think humility means everybody's better than I am. No, no, no. Humility understands who I really am. I might be really good at something, way better than you at it. And humility doesn't, doesn't downplay that. Humility just realizes that's just my strength. You're probably really good at something that I'm horrible at, and this just happens to be the thing on display right now. Humility recognizes spiritually that I'm nobody special. doesn't matter what kind of clothes I have on. doesn't matter my background. Humility recognizes my standing before God because that's my true standing. Who I am before God. I'm a sinner just like you are. And that's, and that's why in James chapter 2 he talked about having mercy towards other people because I realized the mercy that was given to me and therefore can spread it to other people. Humility says, I recognize who I am before God and because I understand who I really am, that totally changes how I deal with people on earth. Because I'm not that special. And you're just like me. You're a sinner too. You're in need of a Savior just as I am in need of a Savior and in need of mercy and grace. Douglas Moo says, meekness is a healthy understanding of our own unworthiness before God and a corresponding humility and lack of pride in our dealings with our fellow men. George Dulock said that mercy, meekness is a yielding of oneself in ready teachability and responsiveness to God's Word. This is the beauty of the church. Because people from all backgrounds and all social status, statuses and means, and we have different degrees of wealth in here, right? Some of us are really poor and some of us are just poor. And then some of us are, no one's rich. I don't, I don't know anybody that's rich in here. But we all have different uh, varying degrees of wealth. We have varying degrees of spiritual background. Some of you came to the Lord uh, very early in your life, and all, all you've known is church. Others of us, you came to the Lord very late in life. And you might have age and experience on the majority of folks in here, but yet when it comes to spiritual things, you're, you're, you're still what the Bible calls a babe in Christ. But that's the beauty of church, because we come in here, and it doesn't matter what your status is out there. We're all equal in here. And in a day when there was when there was slavery and there was Jew and Gentile and Roman citizenship versus everybody else and all of those things, they could go into the church and everybody was the same. You've heard the phrase, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that's what James is trying to explain to them here. Show it meekly. We glory not in who we are. When I walk in here, it's not about showing you how smart I am or how nice I look. We glory in who God has made us. We glory in who God is and who in whom, whom God has made us to be. And so James simply says here that wisdom is shown by the behavior. 
Number two, he says that not all wisdom is the same. Now, presumably, at this point in the conversation, someone is going to stand up and say, that's me, James. All right, I qualify. I've got, Jam- I've got wisdom and I've got knowledge. I'm wise and I'm humble. Let me tell you how humble I am. I wrote a book on humility. It's all about me. And it's how humble I really am. Do you get the, the, uh, the oxymoron in that in proclaiming your humility? I'm the most humble person in this room. Anybody dare to be more humble than I am? Someone in the back, I think I'm more humble than you are. You know, by the, by the, by the fact that I waited this long to show off my humility. You know, the, here's, here's, here's in this conversation, here's where I see this guy speaking up. And James is, is, is going to have to counter this. But this guy or these group of people would say, all right, I've got this humility and wisdom. I've got the knowledge. I know everything there is to know. Maybe this is a Jew in the church that has grown up. He's memorized portions of the, of the Scriptures. Maybe entire books of the law, maybe. He's got uh, uh, training. Uh, he's got uh, his background. He's got some means. He's got all the things. He says, I would be the ideal teacher. I can teach these scummy Greeks that don't know anything about our God. I can teach them about the Lord. And I can teach them about the law. And I can teach them about everything. I should be the teacher, James. And James explains something very important here. He says to these men that if your wisdom is marked by envy and strife, then you don't have God's wisdom. And you don't need to be the teacher. Look in verse number 14. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, Glory not, and lie not against the truth. He says, if you have envy and strife in your in your heart, and, and, it, and it starts with envy, that, that bitter envy, it's jealousy, which leads to strife on the outside, because I'm all about me. If I'm self, if I'm uh, self-absorbed, if I am jealous of other people, it's because I like my way, and I and you don't like. Me as much as I like me, and that's going to be a problem. And when you are all about you, and I'm all about me, there's going to be some strife. There's going to be some conflict. And James says, if there's jealousy in your heart and strife because you're fighting to get your way, he says, don't lie to yourself and don't lie to the truth. Don't fool yourself and don't lie to us either. Because this selfish, me-first attitude leads to strife. James describes this wisdom. Basically going to say that that wisdom that you think you have is not God's wisdom. It didn't descend from above, as we read in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from, from above, from the Father of lights. And James says the wisdom you have that is, that is marred by strife and, and, and confusion and by uh, jealousy did not come down from above. This is not a, a gift from God. Uh, the Father of lights. Notice how he describes it in verse number 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. The word earthly there means it's unheavenly, human. It's of this world, not of that world. The word sensual means it is unspiritual. Now sometimes when we use the word sensual, we're, we're using it kind of to describe something sinful. And here he's just saying it's not 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 necessarily sinful. It's just natural. It's not supernatural. It's from here. It's natural. It's worldly. It's earthly. And he says, but thirdly, he says it's devilish. It's ungodly. 
So James describes this wisdom as unheavenly, unspiritual, and ungodly. He described this, uh, th- th- he uses the same idea in chapter 3 again uh, earlier when he was talking about the tongue, saying that the tongue is set on fire by hell. And he's saying, that's the type of wisdom you have. It's ungodly wisdom. It is unheavenly wisdom, and it is unspiritual wisdom. And notice what the results of that type of wisdom. In, verse, in the next verse there, he says, For where envying and strife is, it's in your heart. Notice what's also there. There is confusion and every evil word. Now this is interesting. The word confusion there is the same, uh, is the same word that, uh, that he used twice before in his, in his letter. In verse number 8 of chapter 1, he said that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And that word confusion in verse, in, in verse number 16 here is the same word or comes from the same root as the word unstable in verse number 8. But it's also the same in verse number 8 of chapter 3 when he says that a tongue is an unruly evil. That word unruly, again, it's the same as unstable. It's the same as confusion there. He's saying there that, that when there is strife and, and uh, jealousy, then there is disorder, there's instability, there's unruliness. And, carry on the, on the, on the top, every evil word. That's what your wisdom will produce. Unspiritual, ungodly, unheavenly produces every evil work. But there's another type of wisdom, and that's what James is, is going to promote here. He says, for uh, verse number 17, but the wisdom that is from above, this is God's wisdom, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And so, to counter James, uh, to counter this uh, man's wisdom, James says God's wisdom is heavenly. It's not of this world; it's from above. It is spiritual rather than sensual, and it is godly. It is not of devils. That which comes from God, he says, is first pure. It's innocent. It's blameless above everything else. It is, as he said in verse twenty-seven of chapter one, it is unspotted from the world. When James said that pure religion is uh, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself pure, unspotted from the world. I am one of those types of people. I don't know it's in my genes somewhere, but I can get that one spot on my shirt and not know where it came from. Anybody else like that? All of us? Okay. It's like I'm eating a hot dog and there's mustard. And I'm like, I didn't even have mustard on my hot dog. There's mustard on my shirt. Coffee. I looked down the other day. I was drinking coffee and I looked down and I have like little coffee graffiti on me like man how did this happen you know and, and then but what, what's horrible is when i find it at the end of the day i'm like how long has that been there and why didn't anybody tell me about this you know I, it, it's it's awful but that it's spotted and you know what you see when you see a spotted shirt the spot you don't see the rest of the unspotted part you see the spot you go there's something on your shirt right there you don't see everything else and so james says that that type of wisdom is unspotted it's pure First, of, first and foremost. And from that purity, all the rest of these qualities flow. He says it's peaceable. It's the opposite of strife. It's harmonious. It's free from worry. He says it's gentle. It practices restraint. It yields. It's tolerant. It's courteous. It's kind. He says it's reasonable. 
means it's ready to listen, persuadable. Remember, if I'm self-absorbed, I really don't care about your opinions and ideas because my idea is the best idea. There's your idea, and then there's the right way, my idea. And, that, and, that's, and I know, why do I need to listen to your idea? But James says that if you have God's wisdom, it's reasonable. I can talk with other people. I can listen to their ideas. It's not going to change my mind if I have God's wisdom. Obviously, I'm probably thinking along the right ways. But you know, there's a lot of things in life that there's not one right answer to. There's a lot of different ways to go about doing some of the same things. And someone who has God's wisdom says, you know what, I'll listen. I'll listen to your ideas. I'll listen to your concerns. I'll listen to your complaints. We go out in the world and there are some legitimate things out there that are troubling people. There's some legitimate things about the church and about God's people that trouble people out there that don't, and that's the reason they don't want to have anything to do with the church. What do we do? Are we going to shut them off and say, no, 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 I'm right? Or do we say, let me hear. Maybe there's a misunderstanding. Maybe there's truly something wrong with the way that I've been living and I need to fix that. But true wisdom is reasonable. True wisdom is merciful and fruitful. That it expresses kindness for someone who is in need. We go back in chapter 2 again in verse 13 when he talked about mercy. Saying that mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what God's mercy looks like. It's, I'm sorry, God's wisdom looks like mercy. It is impartial. It means it's not divisive. It's not bias and prejudice as he spoke of in the beginning of chapter 2. But he says it's also it's sincere. It's not hypocritical. It's without pretense. Genuine. It doesn't pretend. And notice that all of these deal with our behavior towards other people. And it is non-aggressive. It is not self-pleasing. It is, how can I live at peace with you? It's not something I, I hold myself off to the rest of the world and try to live a holy God's wisdom life. No, I deal with people. And I deal in gentleness and reasonableness and mercy. And I deal with, uh, with being fair. And I deal with all the fruits there that he says it produces within me. And notice the result, the end of the, the end of the chapter there. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. He says that the result of God's wisdom is the fruit of righteousness. It's the harvest that is sown by a peacemaker. Remember when Jesus in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, those who make peace. And James here says that those Peaceful people, those peaceable people will sow peace and they will yield righteousness. Why? Because wisdom is doing righteousness. And so what James has been saying here, this uh, 18 verses here, is that these are the people who should teach. These are the people who should share the truth in word and in deed. It's true, yeah, not everybody should teach. Because not everybody is qualified. Because not everybody has this type of wisdom. So here's the, here's the application. And here's, and here's, okay, we understand what he's saying here, but remember I, remember I said at the beginning, some of you aren't teachers. So how does this deal, how, what does this mean for me? What if I don't teach or what if I don't want to teach? Uh, is this just for those who desire to be teachers? There's a handful of people in here that, all right, I'm a teacher. This applies to me. And the rest of us, man, we should have not come today. We could have, we could have slept in because this didn't apply to me. I showed up to a meeting that wasn't about me. Or is this simply for me to know when I'm choosing my teachers? Well, all the teachers have been chosen. I'll have to think about this right now. But hey, I'll, I'll keep this in mind for later when we choose new teachers. Let me, let me see if I can change your thinking a little bit. 
we apply this this way, as I was thinking about this this week, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission is not found in the Bible, the words Great Commission, but the idea of it there is, and I'm, I'm going to turn to it and read it, although many of us probably have it memorized. But there's an interesting word that Jesus used there to explain our duty as the church. He says in verse number uh, 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye, therefore, and teach. Not all should be teachers, but yet Jesus has said to all of us, go teach. Or literally, it means to make disciples. But he says, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. Again, here, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And he goes on, though I'm with you always, but he says twice there, he says, teach. So the Great Commission commands me to be a teacher. So am I supposed to choose whose instruction I'm supposed to follow? Is James saying, no, you shouldn't be a teacher. But Jesus is saying, you're supposed to go teach. No, if we understand what James is saying there, he's saying, don't be a teacher before it's time, before you have the proper wisdom, because eventually you're supposed to teach. To teach all nations means to make disciples by baptizing them and to teach them to follow Jesus. And this is not the pastor's duty. This is the church wide responsibility. To obey the Great Commission, I must teach. To teach, I must first know the truth. But James added that to properly teach, it is not enough to know the truth. You must live that truth too. Let me read a, a passage here. I think it's in your bulletin there. But Hebrews chapter 5 uh, speaks of those who should be teachers, but they weren't ready. It says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So James is saying here, I'm not James, the writer of Hebrews is saying here that there is a time when these people should have been ready to teach. But they weren't ready. Because they weren't skillful in the word they were more interested in the milk of the word not the meat of the word and when the time came when they should have been able to teach they weren't ready and if the great commission commands me to be a teacher and there's a time when i'm supposed to be a teacher then everything james said here in chapter three applies to me not because i'm a pastor but because i'm a christian and everything James said here in chapter 3 applies to you because you're a Christian. You're commanded to teach. So if you're a, te if you're a Christian, you're either a teacher now or a teacher in training. It's the truth. Now that teaching may not look like an official classroom with students in front of you and a schedule and an allotted time. That teaching may be your children. That, that teaching may be a fellow Christian called discipleship. Teaching other people. It doesn't have to look like a classroom to be a teaching setting. It can be a time when, remember, the wisdom is displayed, not in the classroom, he says. It's displayed everyday life. If you're a Christian, you're a teacher. And what the writer in Hebrews reminded us here is that those people who became skilled in the Word simply became that way because they learned to apply or practice or use what they already knew. 
And as they continue to grow in knowledge, they continue to apply more. And they continue to grow in knowledge, and they continue to apply more. And eventually, the time was like, all right, it's time for you to teach. And those people were ready. But if we find ourselves not doing what we already know, or not knowing more, not learning more, and by doing neither of those, or not doing both of those, eventually, by virtue of time, oh man, we could really use you as a teacher. Not we as we needed a Sunday school teacher, but we as the church need people to disciple other people. We need you to teach someone. We need you to grow someone up in the faith. You still haven't figured it out yourself. And that's what the writer is saying here. So if you're a Christian, you're either a teacher or a teacher in training. How's it coming? How's your training going? Whatever amount of wisdom that you have, whether you would say honestly and humbly, I have a lot or a little. How is that revealed in your life? How does that show? Because wisdom is not so much for you to say you have, it's for us to see that you have. Does it look like God's wisdom or man's wisdom? We really, we have a very helpful checklist here. Does the wisdom that I claim to have look more like what God's, what James says is man's wisdom or does it look more like what God's wisdom. Remind you that Jesus reminded the, 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 the disciples in Matthew 7 that we will know people by their fruits. What they display, that's how we know the truth about them. So, are you learning? Are you practicing that which you learn? Now, for some of us, this is a reminder that what I say must be backed up by my actions. For me, as a, as a teacher, maybe as the the primary teacher or the lead teacher, lead pastor, whatever you call it, I'm reminded, yeah, what I say needs to be backed up by my actions. For, those, for, those, for many of you, that's the same reminder. But for others, it's a reminder of the great honor and responsibility that we have to teach others. If you have been entrusted to stand before a group of people as an official representative of the church and to teach people, that's a big responsibility. Whether they be five years old or 55, it's an important duty to stand before a group of people and teach the very words of God. Think about this. I'm telling you what God said. I better get it right. If I teach you something other than what God said, I'm going to stand before God and be accountable for it. For all of us that teach that way. That's why it's so important that we know what we're talking about first. And we live it out. Again, for others, it's a nudge to prepare. Start getting ready. Keep learning. Start practicing what you're learning because the time is coming. It may not be an official time. It may not be a, all right, so-and-so, now it's time for you to teach. Step into the next phase of your life. It may just all of a sudden, hey, man, we're needing people. Think about this. If, if everybody in this room stopped growing and you just kept coming to church and you just kind of went through the motions, but you stopped spiritually growing right now, Eventually, there would be a big gap because all the people that are currently teachers would eventually die off and we would be left with people who are as spiritually grown as they are right now. Eventually, as time goes on, we would have no teachers. We've all got to be teaching. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying in a classroom. I'm saying as God would have you teach. For all of us, it's a reminder that we need wisdom to teach. And the best place to start 
when you need wisdom, James has already touched on it, James 1.5, many of you lack wisdom. Let's ask God. He gives it to all men liberally. God gives wisdom to those who ask. He shows us what to do, how to use our knowledge, how to obey His Word. And as I learn and obey, it is God's will that I then turn to another person and begin to teach them. Are you ready to teach? Are you getting ready to teach? Pray with me.